Nature Works Podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. In this episode of NatureWorks Podcast, my guest is Steve Box, a marine biologist, PhD, studying the effects of fishing practices that endanger more than half of our ocean's biodiversity. I asked Steve the big question, for me at least, are the oceans beyond repair? And if not, what's the solution? What can ordinary people like you and I do about it? We also discuss fishery management and illegal and overfishing and how coral reefs are wiped out by land-based chemicals, especially those coming from agriculture. We cover the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, though not literally, and more broadly, we speak about ocean garbage and the effects caused by our endless assaults on the watery world. I also couldn't resist asking Steve about the controversial movie Sea Spiracy. Now, if you enjoyed this episode and others, please share with like-minded folks who actually give a crap about the natural world. NatureWorks podcast is free of all sponsors or advertising, and our aim is to provide honest and unbiased insights into how we can all help protect, restore, and regenerate the natural world. I want to ask you all about the network approach to fisheries mm-hmm. shortly, but staying on the, the big picture, uh, it seems that the narrative is right now is that the oceans are acidifying, coral reef is dying everywhere, fish stocks are at mostly all-time lows, all of the garbage that's in the ocean with this great garbage patch that doesn't seem to be a patch at all, but certainly... It's a continent. This whole continent. It's a garbage continent. (laughs) Yeah. So all of that, when I look out of the ocean and as a surfer and somebody who now lives in Bali, so the proximity is right here, Mm -hmm. less than a mile from where we're sitting. I kind of look out and uh, my heart sinks, especially when I see all the garbage on the beach. And I see the same fishermen on the beach every day and they've never caught anything. So we'll, we'll dive into the specifics of how it, can be better where it is better different approaches but it does seem to me certainly in my lifetime when i used to go swimming in cornwall with a snorkel mask on at age seven and eight and see fish everywhere that we've 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 damaged it almost irreparably so it would seem or is that just narrative to raise money for ngos and so governments can put in new policies I, I think the narrative is true. We have put incredible pressure on, on coastal fisheries. We're dumping an enormous amount of garbage into into the seas. It's a it's a great repository. You just throw it and it disappears. Mm. It then washes back up. But for a long time, people were using you know using rivers and, and the sea as as a place to to dump you know solid waste, plastic, sewage, um, without really thinking about the long-term consequences of that. And, and it's just a cumulative impact. At some point, you're going to start to really notice it. So, yeah, when you were swimming in, in Cornwall, the UK government was pumping sewage straight into the sea um, as, a, you know, as a policy. You know, the, the original adage was the solution to pollution is dilution. And it disappears. And that's one of the issues with marine management in general. It's over the horizon or under the water you could stand on the beach in Cornwall, look out and go, wow, what a beautiful vista. You know, the sea looks amazing. And it wasn't until some of that refuse started washing back up that people started thinking, 
what's actually going on out there over the horizon. So it is a narrative. Um, it is true. Um, but I think just focusing on the doom and gloom side actually makes a lot of people despondent. If we can't solve the problem, we're not going to, you know, we're just not going to engage. And I think it's very important to shift the way we talk about these problems through a lens of what can you do about it? What are the actions you can actually take? And how do you then get enough people to move in that direction, knowing that they can actually make positive change? Because if you just focus on, you know, calamity, the world's coming to an end, everyone just hunkers down and just thinks about themselves. And these are collective issues that you have to solve through a coordination rather than isolationism. When the UK government was getting called out for its dirty beaches, and mm -hmm. I remember at some point, it was probably on a kids' TV program, they, they started putting up flags. Blue flags. Blue flags, right? Mm -hmm. Where were you then? Because I'm in, intrigued as to what led you to become a marine biologist. Uh, I would have been in the UK. So I spent my early childhood actually in Indonesia. I grew up um, very young in, in Jakarta. Um, I remember snorkeling on the reefs in the Thousand Islands. Um, incredible, beautiful systems. Sadly, those systems are now so degraded, you wouldn't want to snorkel on them. Um, but yeah, I then moved back to the UK and I was, I was, in, I was in England. Yeah. Cold, and, and, cold what, and what led you to decide to become a marine biologist? Um, it's, I don't really have a clear kind of origin story of, you know, I've, I've, I've always been um, near the sea. Um, I loved swimming. When I could learn to dive, I started diving. Um, I remember diving on reefs when I was about 18 years old and thinking, this is incredible. And actually, I think my first career choice was I want to become, you know, a dive master or a dive instructor. And this is the dream. And I, I was chatting that dream through with my, with my dad. And he's like, well, that's a great dream, but how long is that actually going to last? You know, um, why don't you think about, you know, studying marine biology um, and go in, in that direction, turn it into a career rather than just an early, early lifestyle choice? Um, so I studied marine biology at, at Swansea, uh, South Wales. That's a very grey place to be studying the ocean. Don't I know it. <laughs> You've got the seven estuary to uh, go and swim around in. And, and, and the Irish Sea to go and you know try and find animals to study. And I really quickly realised that wasn't for me. I wasn't particularly excited by you know cold waters and driving rain. And I actually did my, my undergrad thesis in Australia on reefs. And I was, ah, this is much more... You know, aligned with what I both enjoy and what I'm fascinated by, and diving on reefs around Lizard Island, just incredible amounts of of marine life. So I came back from that and said, I'm going to focus on coral reefs. That's my that's my path. When we were chatting last week, after we had a little tour of the rice paddy fields mm -hmm. at the back of our office, the the part of our conversation that fascinated me the most was the behavioural change piece that you've been focused on. Mm -hmm. And so you're something of a social scientist in ways as well, aren't you? Because you're a PhD, so you understand the fish part, but you also understand the human aspect. Because I've worked in that field for many years in coaching, but also working with some very clever complexity scientists and people, a lot of psychologists. And actually, it's, it, I'm, I don't mean this immodestly, but it's usually quite rare when I hear something that has been implemented at a government level that actually seems quite clever. And what you were talking about on how you've actually got fisheries 
small scale fisheries to connect and to be incentivized and motivated to essentially be coherent in protecting fisheries. Uh, that really struck me. I didn't. I wanted to ask you more questions at the time, but I also wanted to save it for today because I knew this podcast was coming up. Can you tell us a bit of a background to uh, to that work, and then especially leading into how you are influencing the human side, the behaviour that actually counts, I guess? Because it's one thing to restore fisheries, but it's another thing to make sure that they stay restored and people yeah, aren't screwing them. So I'll I'll start at the end and then kind of rewind and and catch you up to it. Um, the, the basic premise is you don't manage fisheries. You manage people and how they interact with, with that marine environment, with what they're catching, how they're catching it, and where they're catching it. The fish will take care of themselves. Yeah? So, so that's the end point. So it all leads back to human behavior. Now, how I got there was, yeah, I was a, I was a coral reef ecologist. I was doing a PhD studying reefs in the Caribbean, in Honduras, um, doing a lot of work on Kind of the the mechanics of the change that was happening on these reefs, the the competition between coral and algae, that as you remove fish that are eating the algae and grazing, the the corals don't have something kind of defending their borders. They get overgrown, and ultimately you lose more and more coral. You get more and more algae, and that system can't support as many fish as a coral dominated one. And that's a story that's been repeated and repeated across the Caribbean and in reefs around the world. So I was, I was working on that, working out these mechanisms, and I was gradually moving further up the food chain. I started looking at fishing issues, you know, what was, what was being caught, who was catching them, where are they catching them? And I wasn't a fisheries biologist. And I was asking what I thought were very simple, should have been easy to answer questions like, how many fishes are there? How much are they catching? Two things that you'd think governments around the world would be able to answer. And again, I was in Honduras, and there weren't statistics on that. They just didn't know how many people were fishing. They didn't know how much they were catching. So I started working out, well, how would you record that information? Because unless you know that, you can't really manage that fishery. You, if you're going to try and make changes, you want to be able to manage whether those, and measure whether those changes are happening or not. So I set up data collection networks. I started registering fishers, working with the government on setting up registration systems, setting up data collection systems. And it, it, the more I was doing that and working with communities, the more I started recognizing that the decisions that communities were making and individual fishers were making was all focused around yeah, behavior, like individual choices that cumulatively shift the way an ecosystem is functioning. And if you could start influencing those behaviors in a slightly different direction, you could actually have a solution set. And so how did you do that? Ah, the, <laughs> the, the secret sauce. Um, I mean, don't give away any trade secrets that no, you don't um, want to, but that's the, the fascinating stuff. But the, the thing is, it's, it's, it's all actually quite basic. There's no like amazing like magic dust. Um, there's no silver bullets. Um, to me, it, it definitely comes back down to data. You have to know, you know who's fishing, what are they fishing, and you can then use that data um, in multiple ways. You can help people understand you know, how, how much are they catching. 
And is that changing through time? If you don't know there's a change, then you're not going to make any changes. Yeah? If you don't notice there's an actual impact, and the problem with a lot of these issues is they're, they're slow creep. Yeah? You don't wake up one day and go, oh, my fishery has collapsed. You wake up every day and basically do the same thing you did the day before. And over years, you start to see that things are getting worse until they hit a, a collapse point. So the data is really important that you use that to, to help people understand what's happening. And then, uh, especially with, with small-scale fisheries, with, with community fisheries, the, the fishers themselves often, excuse me, <coughs> often self-describe as um, being very, you know, I'm a humble fisher, I'm a poor fisher. They're very passive terms. They're not agents of change. They don't describe themselves as, you know, small businessmen or entrepreneurs or, you know, the providers of food or, you know, guardians of culture. And if you can shift that self-perception, you can actually then empower each of those individual fishers to take responsibility for the fishery in front of them, for the habitat that's, that's safeguarding their livelihood and the livelihood of their communities. And, and when I worked at Rare, the program, which was called Fish Forever, was really focused on, on that. How do you identify these, these empowering kind of self-perception pieces, the Responsible Fisher campaign, for example, and how do you link that to very specific actions that those individuals could take individually and collectively that could shift a management system over their coastal waters? And sorry, I'm, I'm going on a bit, but it's, it's kind of important because a lot of fisheries management previously had focused on kind of a hard science approach. Let's do a stock assessment. Let's then try and work out how many fish you could take um, to hit this magical maximum sustainable yield number. Um, and you just keep collecting data to feed into these models. And it'll spit out a number that says you can catch, you know, 50 tons this year. And then you'd have to manage all of those fishes to cumulatively catch 50 tons and then say, stop, and that's it, and that's your quota. Now, that might work in fisheries with a lot of science, a lot of technical capacity, a lot of enforcement capacity, but it's really inappropriate for communities that are you know, spread out across a coastline. There isn't the science on those fisheries to begin with, and there isn't really a mechanism to say, stop, you've hit your quota. Mm. So there isn't the, the law enforcement, the command and control. So you need to shift the, the focus of the management and think about it more holistically and say, you know, you, you can fish in these areas, but you really have to work on protecting these critical areas, the spawning sites, the nursery grounds, and enough of the habitat that you can sustain a population of fish indefinitely to balance the amount that you're taking out. That takes upfront science, but then it's really about mobilizing the communities to recognize their role in protecting those areas. And then you don't need that perpetual, you know, scientific input of setting quotas and trying to manage and control the, the effort of the fishery. You're really just trying to manage the ecology of the fishery. Well, I'm assuming there's tensions between local fisheries and then international fishing fleets. I know here in Indonesia, every day there's thousands of illegal fishing vessels that come into Indonesia's waters and rape and pillage the corals and the fish 
stocks. And because the region is just so vast, there's no way of actually being able to track and therefore prevent it. In If your livelihood is, and that of your family is based on a local fishing area that you've probably been fishing or your grandfather and great-grandfather fished before you, and then you've got these illegal fishing fleets and massive trawlers coming in, that must create some serious problems between the communities and the no, ab- absolutely. And if you think about the, the competition on three levels, you've got your community-based fishers, your small-scale fishers. They're the ones, as you say, they've, they're fishing close to shore. They're using fairly low technology. They're, they're repeating the actions of their neighbors and of their, their parents and grandparents. Um, then you've got kind of the industrial commercial fisheries of a domestic nation um, that use much bigger boats, much more technology, they're going after high-value species, often supplying export markets. Um, and there's there's normally competition between those two fleets um, as a very lopsided or asymmetrical one. And then you have um, foreign fleets that are given permission to come into territorial, uh, into coastal waters, uh, into the exclusive economic zone of countries and, and fish. Um, and that's you know the government of the country selling fishing rights to foreign fleets. And then you have the illegal boats. So you've got that, that those kind of multiple layers of competition. And you're, you're right, at the bottom of that, these communities really struggle. If you're trying to compete, if you're in a, a small wooden boat with a small you know, hook and line, and you're trying to compete with an industrial trawler, you're gonna lose. And so, but the, the reason that competition is even more unfair is those small, communities and and small-scale fisheries can't demonstrate the value of their fishery to a government. And so if you're a a government policymaker sitting in the capital and a commercial fishing interest comes and says, you know, we want to be able to fish in this area, we're going to employ 5,000 people and we're going to generate $35 million a year in revenue, and the communities don't have anything to say. They say it's important to us, but important isn't a political you know, narrative. If they could say, well, actually, this is employing 25,000 people and generating 50 million in revenue, but it's diffuse across these communities rather than being you know, um, consolidated in one company, that becomes politically important. And so part of the work of kind of being able to separate out these, these fisheries and, and reduce the competition between sectors is actually leveling the playing field in terms of economic importance and employment importance and, and food security importance. Um, the illegal fishing issue is is kind of a, a parallel one. Uh, it, it, it comes down to being able to yeah, enforce your maritime borders. Um, in certain countries, you know, illegal fishing is also a political choice. They're allowing things to happen. The, the command and control ability does exist you know, vessels, these are big boats, you can track them. There are groups out there that will track them on your behalf. And it's it's interesting that it, it's still allowed to continue. And to me, that's a that's a political choice to enable it. And then selling fishing rights to foreign fleets, that's a political choice as well. Um, and actually not actively separating small-scale fisheries from industrial fisheries and recognizing those are different and that you need to be safeguarding the the income and employment of these communities, those are also political choices. But you can't make a good political choice 
in, in a vacuum. And that's why it comes back to data. You know, all of these fisheries are operating essentially in the dark, that there just isn't information on you know, those guys on the beach who you never see catching any fish. Well, maybe they catch some, but it's never recorded. Now imagine you've got entire communities, hundreds, thousands of communities, each with, let's say, 50 fishers in. So you've got, let's say, 100,000 fishers, each going out, each one is only catching you know, 20 kilos. But if you aggregate that together, that's an enormous amount of protein flowing in through these you know, dispersed areas. That means per day. Per day, kilos. yeah. And, but it's never recorded. And so all of that side of the productive economy and the food security of a nation is overlooked. And so people start, well, you know, we need to invest more in our industrial fisheries. They're the ones that are really productive. We need to invest more in aquaculture. We need to be growing these fish because we're just not catching enough. And the reason they believe we're not catching enough is because it's not being recorded. Does that make sense? Makes sense entirely, yeah. So I know you're working, well, you've got an app, haven't you, that enables... Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a sort of pitch for the... the communities, app. yeah, I could see where that, <laughs> that was going. But it's is it one of the only apps out there that's been put together for that? There's. It's interesting. Um, there's actually a lot of apps for, you know, for fisheries, for fish businesses to record their, their trade. Um, quite often they're focused either on, you know, a, a way of, of putting data collectors into communities and digitizing that data. That's really useful if, if your aim is just to study the fishery for a short period of time. Um, or they're trying to, to reshape the market chain. So they're trying to link fishers to better buyers or different markets digitally. So they're, you know, following that shift of digital commerce. That's also very good. But where this app, our fish, kind of differentiates is it's just trying to provide basic data to all of those you know, local communities, the, the fish buyers that are buying fish on the beach from fishers and giving them their basic data on how much they uh, how much they're buying and you know where and how much they're selling it for, giving them very simple like PLs, profit and loss. And it's not trying to completely reshape business structures. It's not trying to set up new market chains and kind of really interfere with what's happening. It's just trying to aggregate data so they don't have a voice, so they exist in the, the economic reality of a country. Is there a list of countries that, from best to worst, for managing their fisheries and also their oceanic pollution? Because I'm, I'm curious, here in Indonesia, obviously, You've got 17,000 islands, you've got quite a lot of coral, you've got a huge amount of species, and uh, it's one of the places that pre-COVID a lot of people came here to dive and snorkel and mm -hmm. fish and the likes. But a year and a half ago, I think it was, the Ministry of Fisheries got arrested for selling off um, lobster larvae to the Chinese. Now, I don't know if he was guilty or not. Uh, I haven't actually checked to see whether he's in prison, mm -hmm. but I know he lost his position on it. One of the things, as you're talking about all of this, one of the, well, one of the thoughts that arises is that in mostly developing countries, those large fleets of um, fisheries that legally get access to the water, they have a lot of influence. And in, I'm not saying in Indonesia, but in other developing countries, potentially, they probably pay in bribes with all sorts of people. Is there a way of monitoring any of that stuff? And is there a, is there a global monitoring system for fisheries per se? 
Um, there was an index put together. It was launched earlier this year, um, which assessed all of the countries around the world on on their fisheries. It's, I believe it's called the Global Fishing Index, and it's looking at uh, exactly that: how is their fisheries management, how is their governance, how is their their transparency in fisheries data. Um, and across the world, no country actually scored very well. <laughs> I think the highest was a C. Um, is that Australia? Uh, yeah, and a, and a few European countries. Um, but there's, and the the report got a lot of a lot of pressure because it was really highlighting the fact that we're not doing a very good job of managing this globally important resource. Um, but uh, it, it you know it was giving out E's and F's to countries, and that's not very inspiring. Um, so that exists, and and the framework for for looking at, at the ability of countries to manage their fisheries. Um, there are international kind of monitoring of of high seas fishing and like industrial fisheries, like tracking where those vessels are going, providing that data to to national um, fisheries departments so they can see, you know, are there incursions into their marine space. Um, but the 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 corruption side that you're alluding to, um, that clearly happens. You know, there's there's clearly incentives being provided for why you would sell off your resources um, in such an indiscriminate manner. Um, but again, it's because the communities that really pay the price for that, which are these coastal communities, they're you know they're quite often rural, remote, marginalised, largely ignored. Um, and so they don't really have a political voice. They, there's, there's, you know, there's fisher associations and, and fisheries or conservation advocates, but they're not really able to provide again that data issue. You know, so it's it's easy to to make a decision in a in a capital city, um, and really you're not noticing the impact of that. Because all of that operation, again, it's that over the horizon issue, and the communities are out of sight, their activity is out of mind. It's much easier to ignore and just, you know, make a different choice, which is the industrial commercial pathway. One of my favorite authors, rather, I should say, the books of an author. <laughs> I really like the books. Um, Harry Potter. No, no, I fell asleep when I first watched the <laughs> Harry Potter and I got two chapters in uh, when somebody recommended it to me years ago and I think I stopped at that at that point. My kids love it though. Yeah. Um, no, Talib, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who, who's written Anti-Fragile and the, brought Black Swan to common parlance. And I think it's in uh, his third book, um, uh, Skin in the Game. He talks about policy wonks. Mm -hmm people making decisions who are far removed from the actual consequences of those decisions. This is, this is people sat in war offices, cozy offices in their home country and sending off young men to fight battles when those people making those decisions have never been to that country. They've never actually lived in that culture. And it's very similar to that. You've got people who've never been on the ocean, certainly people who've never lived in rural communities so they have no idea what the effect is and I, it actually occurs to me that people if you're going to put somebody in as a as a minister of fisheries or at least some of the direct reports to somebody like that you should have people from those rural communities the problem is of course is 
they're probably not the people going to university and going and getting degrees and having the so it becomes this internal vicious cycle that you have people so disconnected from it they probably go out for their odd photo and get their instagram shot you know uh, on some rural coastal community but um switching gears a little bit i, I, was, I was wondering is there a question there because no, i do actually I have a response yeah, to the question on. i think yeah, you're alluding ahead. to yeah, yeah. In the, I just don't want to dig a hole for you because I know you're no, you know, as it's, a no, it's, it, no, it's all it's all good. I'll I'll do my own digging. Right. Um, you're right. The 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 disconnect between decision making at the highest levels and the reality on the ground and and on the water is is vast. It, but it's not just you know it's not just politicians and decision makers. Society as a whole, um, there are very few people really who have spent that amount of time living that reality, living a, you know, a fishing reality of not really knowing what tomorrow is going to bring. And you know, imagine waking up and going out fishing and catching a little bit of fish. You sell it, you eat, you, know, you go and do whatever else you do that day. And you're not actually sure if the next day you're going to be able to you know, have income. You can go out fishing again and catch nothing. And maybe that happens. Maybe the storm comes in. You can't fish for two weeks. There's an enormous amount of uncertainty in those lives and livelihoods. And that's not the reality for a lot of people living, you know, salaried jobs, living um, in, in cities where we're increasingly removed from that level of kind of hunter-gatherer uncertainty. And fishing is, is hunting, you know, um, and you never know what you're going to catch. And so just trying to reframe the way we think about the problem is difficult because it's so far removed from, from the reality of most of the people sitting in offices, sitting in government buildings. Um, and once again, they just, uh, even if they want, a, you, know, a, you know, I want to invest in small scale fisheries. I want to help that sector. I, I recognize they're, you know, they're very important for food production and I recognize it's employing a lot of people, how can I help? And the solutions are often, well, let's build some infrastructure. Let's try and turn that fishery into an, a small version of an industrial commercial fishery. So let's, you know, let's give them bigger boats. Let's give them better engines. Let's, let's build them a, a dock. Let's build them an ice plant. And it's building things. And most of those things don't actually work because what it's doing is it's subtly changing the economics of the fishery. So those fishers can't actually afford to run those big boats because there isn't the catch level there. Or it's actually increasing fishing power so much that it's actually just accelerating the decline of that resource. So instead of thinking about it of how do we actually manage this system sustainably, most of the solutions that are proposed for small-scale fisheries are how do we increase the production potential of that fishery by just increasing inputs? All that really does is hasten the decline. Where does tourism come in? Because I flew to Australia when I was 19, mm -hmm. with mostly with the intent to go diving on the Great Barrier Reef. Australia got my money for four or five months at that point before I fell in love with an Australian and spent five years there. But it was the main draw was to go up to Cairns and to dive for a couple of weeks. Um, and from what I understand now, there's not a lot of that going on because the the bleaching of the coral in, on the Great Barrier Reef. But how do you integrate the the potential for tourism into rural fishing communities and especially with coral reefs as well because i'm assuming that a lot of the the fishing um has a negative effect on coral reefs 
because as you get less and less fish stocks, because the areas are overfished, you're going to fish in closer, you're going to take anything you can. They're diving down and taking the stuff that typically they wouldn't normally eat and selling that off to aquariums and everything else. I have seen um, Finding Nemo. You know? mm -hmm. uh, True story. So, so how does, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. How does all of that interact? Um, I think tourism plays a part, but I also think it gets overemphasized as a solution in that there are a lot of factors that affect whether tourists go to a place. The infrastructure, um, the accessibility, uh, and a lot of tourists will aggregate in, in one area because the infrastructure is there, because of you know the service mentality is there, whatever a tourist is looking for. And there are actually only very few places, reef places, where a lot of dive tourism actually occurs. There is a lot of reef in the world which is fished, that tourism is not an not an alternative. It's not really an alternative livelihood for you know the millions of fishers that exist fishing reef fisheries. So it is important in in specific areas, um, and there can be these you know transitions of fishers to you know tour guides, boat operators, dive guides, and that's you know a very common narrative of how you protect a reef. Let's put in an MPA. Let's shift everyone into a tourism-based economy. And, you know, that in Belize, I spent a lot of time in, in Central America. There are some really successful examples of communities shifting wholesale into tourism, setting up a reserve, protecting it from fishing. That's great. And there's, there's other examples lots around the world, but they're not a scalable solution to the scale of the problem. If you actually want to solve overfishing, you've got to actively manage that fishery. Other solutions that I've been hearing is, well, let's just pay fishers not to fish for two or three years and try and rebound uh, the fishery. Well, what happens when you stop paying? Because you just, if you're not actually building the management structure and the way of sustainably using that resource, it'll just collapse again. Um, and it's ludicrously expensive. If you actually took that money, the subsidy money, and, and spent it on building that management capacity, setting up this kind of network of protection and use, which is wholly possible, then it's to me it seems like a very misguided way of, of thinking of a solution. Let's just pay people to not do anything, and then they'll restart and magically the fish will be, you know, managed. And tourism to me, you know, it's a it's really useful for, for small areas, but tourism brings its own coastal impacts. You know, there's there's enormous issues with with water usage, with coastal runoff, with pollution with actually driving up the demand for for fish so it's not you know it's not a it's not a silver bullet solution we've also seen what happens when albeit a, a very very unexpected event such as covid kicks in and a tourist community uh, sorry a tourist economy like bali gets completely gutted and what do people turn to they go back they to go rural back to farming and they go back to fishing yeah and so one of the other things that's really important for for policymakers to to really recognise, and these fisheries are the social safety net of nations. That you, you've got to be sustained them, even if even if you're managing to transition people out into you know other employment. Um, maybe they're they're working offshore and sending money back. Maybe they're moving into tourism. When when that changes and people come back, you need those fisheries to still feed your your country, and so. To me, yeah, all of those other economic alternatives are great. 
but you've you've got to be securing that that basic nutrition and telling people you're not going to you're not going to fish we're just going to close your fishery it's not really an option people need the the basic protein that's coming from these resources and just trying to shift that many people out of fishing and then as you say it's 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 not resilient if if that economic area collapses people have to go back to it and if if that resource is no longer there they've got nothing to go back to and then a country's in in really serious um, trouble and so safeguarding those coastal waters for coastal communities protecting them from rampant exploitation because you know small scale fisheries they're not you know naturally sustainable but they are possible to become sustainable whereas you know strip mining the ocean through bottom trawling um it, there's no way bottom trawling can be sustainable you you you're harvesting everything you're destroying the habitat at the same time and that's a very short-sighted view of a you know a long-term resource i saw the greenpeace were in court recently in regards to putting down large concrete blocks to prevent that is it called what's it called strip fishing strip it's called bottom trawling bottom trawling right mm-hmm. yeah and the, they won their case saying that they were allowed to drop it to prevent that mm-hmm. that seems like a reasonably i don't know if that's a i don't know if that's a, a, a done for press greenpeace depends on it mm-hmm. how many column inches it gets obviously or whether that's a, an effective approach i think it's an approach um again i would i would always question the scalability of it if you're having to dump you know tens of millions of concrete blocks into coastal waters i think there's probably a different way of solving it at scale um i'm really interested by a, a new coalition that's forming to really bring people together around the issue of of coastal bottom trawling and like an advocacy effort of of convincing governments that's not a good pathway it's not a good use of of coastal resources and to move bottom trawling offshore or ban it um but really if you're if you're bottom trawling in coastal waters you're destroying the productivity of a very productive system very very short sighted it's also very wasteful so there's a yeah a coalition around yeah um banning bottom trawling which is which is growing momentum at the moment what's the state of the waters around bali obviously um, biased as we sit here in bali privileged to be a mile from the beach so they are mixed i'm going to give it a very mixed review um clearly the coastal contamination is 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 a problem um and that's been well recognized you know the runoff from from agriculture you know all of the pollutants that are coming through the subak system which is this incredible water system um it would be even more incredible if it was managed to not discharge lots of you know nitrogen phosphorus and potassium into coastal waters or pesticides and herbicides so i think there's a inherent link between trying to manage what's happening on land with with the quality of the the coastal waters i think waste management in general is is an issue the amount of of solid waste that's also making into coastal waters not just around bali but it's a great example of how how connected these systems are that you know trash is washing up from all over the place onto these beaches and these beaches are super high value when tourism is running and people are coming to go to these beaches and they don't want to go to a plastic beach um in terms of marine life you know, i've actually been really impressed with the reefs around limbongan and the the smaller islands right right next to bali 
they've been really vibrant. The, the reef condition there is actually really impressive. Um, there aren't a lot of big fish, so there's clearly some um, still fishing going on. But I think those those reefs are actually very situationally lucky in that because of the the cold water currents that are flowing around there, it's keeping that water cool so they're not bleaching. So they're not being affected by these kind of environmental crises in the same way as other reefs around the world. And I think that's a really important thing to, to think about. Where are these, these refugia of reefs because of where they happen to be located so they're protective of some of these global impacts? If you could then protect them from some of the local impacts, so water quality and overfishing being chief among them, you've then you're then safeguarding areas that could repopulate other reefs once you actually manage to to solve those those global impacts. We went to Limbongan a few weeks ago and we went to Manta Bay or Manta Point. Manta Point. And I said to the kids, listen, don't get too excited because it's very, very rare that you're going to dive in and see mantas. Mm-hmm. And we get there and we dive in and there's a dozen mantas all <laughs> swimming around. Takes your breath away. Like huh? aliens underwater. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Um, you mentioned the runoff from the from the paddies. This is mm-hmm. something very close to my heart. We've just taken on, obviously, our own initial amount of rice paddy fields that we're going to clean up. We were, Moyan, who's recording this right now, we were standing next to the Subak earlier, full of garbage and filth and food waste, and we've seen all sorts of sewage going down it, and that's just the stuff you can see. We're putting in garbage traps to pick all that stuff out. we just got to get permission because it, anything you do around here, the local farming community wants to make sure that you're not going to damage their yields and their crops. Um, but you mentioned when we last spoke that there's a system that interferes with coral where the is it the fertilizer or or the herbicide interferes with a signaling system is that right almost very almost. Good. Well, uh, and, and reason and, I, reason i say it like that is because i tried telling it to somebody uh-huh. in jakarta this week and i was like oh god i didn't listen well enough because i was should have WhatsApp me. mesmerized by it yeah i was in a meeting trying to explain it so uh, I'm, I'm, I love talking about coral, so you've got me yeah, well, right, I'm going right back next, into my, yeah, got, into my coral. Going there. Um, so a coral is a, an amazing animal, because it's not just an animal, it's an animal, a mineral, and a vegetable. Um, you know, Wait, it's an animal, a mineral, and a vegetable? I don't know, amazing. Really? You know, if you had to, you know that guessing game? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's all three in one. So the animal is, is a, you know, a very simple kind of, uh, think of an upside-down jellyfish. Yeah? So it's got a little body, and it's got its tentacles. And it's sitting in a house that it creates, it builds, which is calcium carbonate. So it's a solid, like, rock house that it it secretes. But inside the tissue of the animal is a a unicellular algae, so a plant, um, that photosynthesizes. So it's creating sugars out of sunlight. And that relationship between the animal and the plant is what enables reefs to live in waters that would otherwise have no life. Within the shell? It's not the shell, it's within the tissue of the animal. So right, imagine, me, imagine, a, jelly, imagine yeah, a jellyfish. I've got the jellyfish. You've turned I've, it upside down. I've got the carbonate shell. You've, right, put, a, you've put a, a little house a around casing. it. Yeah, casing. Yeah. And then within the tissue of, of the animal, there's, there's unicellular algae. That's yeah. mind-blowing. And the, the, the animal itself is translucent. It's allowing light to come through it. And actually the shape of its, its calcium carbonate um, house is shaped to reflect more and more light back into itself, so it's actually helping the 
um, the algae have maximum amount of light so it can produce more sugar. So it's an incredible relationship. And the reason that grew up is because in coastal waters in the tropics, um, on the east side of continents, there's very few nutrients because of the way of global ocean patterns and global ocean currents. You know, they're moving around the world in, in one direction. And as they butt up against a continent, they're driving nutrients into um, uh, shallow waters, into surface waters, enabling life to, to bloom. And then you get big fisheries that are coming from that, the anchovy fisheries, tuna fisheries. Those are on the western coast of, of you know, South America, Africa. Yeah, that's very, very big productive fisheries. On the east coast, because the water's essentially moving offshore, it's creating a downwelling, nutrients are disappearing. They're, they're hitting the seafloor and they're not coming back up. And so there's no nutrients to spark life. So a coral reef solves for that problem by having the animal eating the, the little bits of plankton and food that are floating in the water. The waste products of that, which are nitrogen and phosphorus, are going into the plant. The plant uses that in its chlorophyll to produce sugar, same as plants. And they pass the sugars back to the animal. Now. That's amazing, and that's a, a relationship. I'm, I'm blown away. <laughs> that relationship's been around for you know hundreds of millions of years, and I will, that's and I will that's, never walk anywhere near a coral reef ever again at low tide because well, I don't want to step on any. Of well, they're, they're very fragile because imagine, again these these baby up, upside down jellyfish. They're very like, soft tissue, and that tissue actually connects out across the the hard calcium carbonate. So if you're if you're pushing on a coral, you're squashing that tissue against rock, which is damaging. So now imagine. That relationship, it's, you know, it's been honed by evolution over hundreds of millions of years. Reefs are building systems that you can see from space. The Great Barrier Reef, you can see it from satellite. Amazing. But it only works if there are very low amounts of nutrients in coastal waters. Because otherwise, there's no reason for that relationship to occur. Because the algae doesn't need the coral to provide the nutrients. It can get it free living. So it leaves. And that, that system breaks down. And at which point, the corals starve. So that's why nutrients from, you know, um, coming from agriculture and going into coastal waters or sewage, which is also, you know, heavy in nitrogen, can really affect reefs and it will stop them from being able to survive. The other piece, that the way the corals are shaped, so they, they reflect light into, into those algae, if it's too bright and too hot, that causes them to bleach. As in, they, they're, they're just like, it's like putting a, a what, what do they call a magnifying glass on something, you know, you're focusing the light. If it's also too hot, it basically, they're, they're cooking themselves and that's bleaching. They actually expel the algae. That's why they go white, because you no longer see the colors that the algae are providing. And all you see is the white skeleton. So coral bleaching is the coral animal like saying, oh, we can't do this anymore. We're just, we're superheating. Let's expel, let's expel the algae and they'll just sit there and go white and essentially starve. They're no longer getting the sugars they need. So is, it, so is it just temperature raising that causes that? Or is it whole, Is it all of the factors? It's temperature like? raising. Um, that's the, the principal one. Um, but the, the, when it's like the prime conditions is when the water is very calm. So you've got a lot of UV penetration and the water is getting very hot. And that combination means there's just too much like, light hitting these, these animals. And there, and at that temperature range, it just messes with the chemistry. That sounds like a natural process, not a man-made 
but the the temperature of the ocean is is the man-made issue right. we've been heating oceans up um and so the um the, the chemistry changes depending on the the temperature range so if we're we're shifting the temperature up you know the tolerance for light at, at that new temperature level just goes down so that's why they bleach am i wrong in saying that coral reef actually sequester co2 yeah because they're um they're absorbing co2 um and they're turning it into calcium carbonate yeah okay um but that must be quite a that's a slow process right yes in comparison to say regenerative agriculture where the, the roots are pulling and the bacteria pulling or a mangrove or a seagrass absolutely corals a slower process than that does it match it i mean if we were going to regenerate coral all over the world would we make any indent on the co2 levels globally i think there is a lot of reasons for regenerating corals i don't think there's a big carbon budget benefit versus the effort it would take i think there's a lot of reasons for doing it anyway um but as a net carbon sink, it's it's a little complicated. So what are the reasons for regenerating them otherwise, other than the beauty and the... Well, there are fun... What, so, are, what are the economic reasons? And So reefs are, you know, they're, they're habitat builders. So you've got these tiny animals that build colonies, and those colonies build enormous structures. Just you give them time and they'll build, you know, canyons, mountains, you know, just incredible three-dimensional space. And three-dimensional space is really important because it allows other animals to live in it. You're creating a surface that other things can attach to, sponges, algae, you know, lots of other life can live on the structures that, that reefs have built. And then all the other life that is part of that, that food web can live in all of these different crevices, holes, gaps, caves, canyons. You know, they're creating a city, a three-dimensional city for life to live in. They're the most biodiverse marine system on the planet. They're one of the most biodiverse systems in the world. Um, not just you know, in the sea, but, but globally, on land or in the water. They got there before Minecraft. Absolutely. But imagine, yeah. So imagine they are Minecraft. I love that. The reefs are like, they're building three-dimensional space for things to, to play in. And if you lose that, that architecture, you lose the city. Um, and at which point you're starting to like catastrophically lose marine life. Um, they're also, as they grow and get bigger, they're, they're fundamentally changing ocean currents. They're, just, they're protecting the shore. You know, there's just enormous ways in which they, you know, they're, they're ecosystem engineers. So. And is, is there a, a hope with restoring corals artificially? Because I've seen some of the videos on coral farming. Mm-hmm looks like it takes a bit of time, but from what I understand, it can be many times faster than the natural process. Yeah, there's there's a lot of really interesting work going on in uh, kind of two two areas. Um, one is like propagation. They're taking existing corals, taking little fragments of them, replanting them, and, and they regrow. And it's um, that's a, you know, a way of, of reseeding reefs. Um, another, which is interesting, is uh, coral species, when they spawn like eggs and, and sperm to produce the, the next generation, that normally floats up to the surface, drifts on ocean currents, turns into a little larvae, and eventually that larvae will come back and settle. Now, you can improve the, the, the chance that that actually comes back and settles by actually helping to capture the, the fertilized eggs 
and gestating them in situ. So you, you create a little pen, and it's basically a little coral hatchery, and once they become competent larvae, they essentially get hosed back down onto the reef. Really interesting work happening in Australia, showing that that, that can work. And it's, it's a way of getting to greater scale as well, because if you're having to manually like take little coral cuttings and repropagate a reef, that that might work at the scale of you know meters to kilometers per diver per diver. But you know there's tens of thousands of kilometers of reefs in the world. And you couldn't you couldn't propagate all of them. But this kind of hosing approach of of actually helping to gestate and and incubate the the coral larvae that that could actually cover greater areas. But to me, the key is to protect the corals before you need to replant them. Like and. It's, it's not actually that complicated. The, the, the two chief threats to reefs are overfishing and coastal water pollution, either you know coastal runoff or sewage. If you can control for those three, three things, so agricultural runoff, sewage, and fishing, you're giving coral a chance, not just the coral, but all the life around it. That system is inherently resilient. It's trying to rebuild. It's trying to survive. Life wants to survive. And... Yeah. Is there much understanding in, for instance, the various departments of agriculture in countries that you've worked in on the effect that they're having on their fisheries? Because um, it seems it's so easy, isn't it, to say agriculture's here on the land and the fisheries, that's the Department of Fisheries, that's nothing to do with us. But of course... Well, well it's funny actually because it's, it's not just two departments, it's three. So quite often in the countries I've been working in, you know, the reef itself, the biodiversity side of it, is under the Ministry of Environment, and often with a conservation lens. How are we going to protect reefs for their inherent biodiversity? The fish, as, a, as an economic resource, are under the Fisheries Department, which is kind of disassociated from managing the reef. It's trying to manage the fish that might be dependent on the reef, but you're not trying to manage the reef, you're trying to manage the fish. It's like managing cash, living cash. Yes, yeah, well, yeah, they're exactly. looking at the system. They're just yeah, looking at fish, the economic. Yeah. Well, fish are money that swim. Yeah, but they're they're forgetting about the bank that's actually printing the money. And then the agriculture is thinking about you know production on land. Um, and then you might have another department that's thinking about water quality. So the connection between land. So you've got four potentially four government departments all thinking about their piece. And I've I've worked in quite a lot of countries around the world. I've rarely seen high levels of coordination between those aims because you know, an agricultural department is trying to boost agricultural production yeah and that's the metric that's why you know the mpk revolution was such a a, a win look we've we've given a simple input and bam production's gone up long-term consequence is what we're feeling now similar to the overfishing consequence of you know increasing fish power fishing power now we're feeling the consequence of that so they're thinking about production. The, the environment department is thinking about, okay, how do we protect this you know, site of special scientific interest or this biodiversity center, this hotspot? And the fisheries department is also actually thinking, how do we boost production? Um, and they don't coordinate. Yeah, which is mind-blowing to me because any idiot can see the effect. Well, well just come here to Bali and it, see what's coming from the land. All, of, all of this, and this kind of brings us back to the, the original conversation it's a coordination problem right the, the solutions exist um it's just how do you coordinate both kind of societal shifts so this becomes a priority for communities for individuals within those communities 
for the farmers or the fishers that they see they can actually make change that isn't going to devastate their, their livelihoods. And it's a political coordination that you can start to see different models that are actually more sustainable rather than just trying to increase inputs and hope that that's going to increase outputs. And it's just coordination. So I started this podcast because I'm, I'm calling myself something of a accidental environmentalist. Nice. Intentional. Intentional. Well, I like fast motorbikes. Mm -hmm. I like cigars. I like flying on airplanes to exotic destinations, although I live in one now and I'm less inclined to go anywhere. I'm I'm not the kind of environmentalist who is so dedicated at a level of personal choices, but I'm working, as you know, in the government here and I'm, and we, our company is, in, is enabling um, some deep levels of influence to work on plastic pollution. We're starting on these regenerative agriculture projects, which we're hoping will, over the next 10 years, will have a big impact. Uh, we're putting sensors into the water so that we can actually detect a lot of what you're talking about from fisheries management and ocean acidification and, and the likes and pollution. So it, whether I want to be an environmentalist or not, I'm, I'm in it. You know, that's what my business does. It's a B Corps ESG focused. And the more I go into this stuff, the more I see this imperative, not least of all because I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old son and I tell them somewhat whimsically about my days as a nine and seven-year-old where I would go walking across the fields at the back of the house. I lived in a council area, but surrounded by fields and greenland and and actually see flocks of starlings and and butterflies and and you know and it's not just nostalgia there was 30 40 years ago there was a lot more wildlife and there was standing cornwall on my mm-hmm. holidays i was seeing a lot lot more fish so i feel there's an imperative and but what's become for me almost slightly overwhelming is just seeing the sheer immensity of the problems globally you know i didn't know anything about illegal fishing until a year ago and it wasn't sea spiracy that highlighted that it was my business partner who's been studying it for a number of, of years i didn't know anything about coral degradation other than what i might read in or see on the bbc or on the odd article and the the deeper you go in it and the more you pull the curtain back the more you realize there's an immense amount of uh, onion of chaos oh my gosh yeah and you know we're only it's one man and individuals and uh, you know have a great team around me that there's only so much you can do you're an expert you're a phd in this stuff what are your biggest concerns and we spoke about this we touched on this at the beginning but what are your personal biggest concerns because you, do you have kids i do i have two yeah i have a daughter who's 15 and a son who's 11 right okay so they've not too dissimilar to me i'm sure you're focused on them inheriting a better healthy planet what are your main concerns at the moment so i'm not allowed to talk about this at home i I need you you to talk about it i I could talk about it here but you know i've spent yeah my entire career thinking about these and just yeah starting very simply and then you know how does it how does it radiate out and i see uh, that actually although the the all of the ramifications, all of the, the issues seem overwhelming and very, very complex. And, oh, there's nothing we can do. Let's just, you know, throw up our hands or, or dig our head in the sand. Um, there's actually some through lines that are that I see as being really interesting. And since moving to Bali, I've got a lot more 
involved in in the agricultural sector, really kind of trying to understand um, farm production and thinking how analogous that actually is to the issues around fisheries. Um, and I see like food production, the way we think about food, either from the sea or, or from the land as, as being a fundamental shift that is happening. Um, I think this issue about um, just trying to continually put more input to get more output, I think as you can start to develop viable economic models that give you an alternative. I think one of the things that people get very despondent about is, well, it's all we can do. There's nothing else. You talk to farmers about you know, why, why they're using MPK herbicides and pesticides. Well, a lot of it is, well, that's what we've always done. You know, this started in the 70s and it was very successful. Do you want to explain what the MPK Oh, sorry. So nitrogen, phosphorus and, and potassium. So it's the, the classic you know, uh, fertilizer. The steroids. For the steroids plants. for the soil. Yes. And, and um, what it does is it enables you to farm in, in conditions where your soil is getting very, very weak. It's not able to, to actually support plant life. So you're, you're, you're putting more and more inputs on. And, you know, to me, that's, that's a behavioral issue in that, you know, farmers are repeating what, what, you know, what they learned, what their fathers learned, what their grandfathers were doing, um, because it was very successful in the 70s and 80s. This was, you know, this was a green revolution. That's what it was called. It was like, this is amazing. We can now grow food on rock. Bam. So I... Or clay. Or clay. Or, you know, and, but again, there's this slow shift issue in that um, farmers haven't recognized deeply that the inputs are going up, so their costs are going up, and actually their yields are going the other way. And so the profit margin is going down, and that's putting farmers into greater debt. And once you're in debt, you start becoming, it, you, you shift the way you make decisions. You're really starting to prioritize short-term gain because you know, you're not starting to think long-term. And so creating alternative models that farmers can understand and go, you know, this is actually viable. This isn't like you're saying you're, you're an accidental environmentalist. I've never described myself as an environmentalist. I'm very pragmatic. I, I deeply love oceans and, and nature, but I, I've always been confused by the term environmentalist or, or conservationist. Well, all of it is just choices. You know? it's, and I see that we are inherently part of the world and we're, we have an impact individually and collectively. And you should be thinking about that. And businesses should be thinking about that and not externalizing the costs onto society or onto nature. That doesn't make me an environmentalist. It just makes me a, a slightly different economist. Uh, <laughs> so I, I do see solutions emerging from, from, you know, from the coral regeneration, from shifting the, the fisheries priorities, setting up these reserves, linking it to, to rights with communities, empowering communities to take action. I see solutions in, in agriculture, the, you know, the regenerative farming movement, permaculture movement, trying to find replacements for synthetic fertilizers that I actually think also provide a huge climate benefit because the, you know, the energy cost of producing you know, ammonia and nitrogen is huge. So shifting people off that, great. I see 
a, a rising level of awareness. And, and whilst you know, COVID like fundamentally altered the world, just an absolute watershed moment. I think it also provides an opportunity of people rethinking things. It's given people, you know, uh, a really dramatic shake of like what what we have been doing um, isn't sustainable. Um, and as we restart, are there alternative paths that we could go down? I see governments that are interested. If someone could actually bring alternative models. Um, I see governments willing to to start to invest in those directions, and I think that's where you know your work and, and the connections you have are, are really important. Because I I get this sense that at the moment most of the solutions that exist are too small; they haven't been scaled. People can't prove it, and no one wants to take a risk. Most people are risk averse. Um, you need those pioneers that can prove it, and then you need your early adopters. We'll look at the pioneers and go, okay, yes, we can do that. Then you need your early majority who look at the early adopters and go, oh, if they can do it, then we can do it. And so, you know, that's that's diffusion of innovation. That's how you sell products. This type of environmentalism is how you sell those ideas that could be picked up by communities and picked up by government. And so if we take ideas from marketing, from social marketing and just commercial marketing, how do you package these ideas so that people can latch onto them and do them? And I don't mean just, well, let's replace plastic straws for bamboo ones. Great, let's do it. But there's a lot more that you could be doing. Uh, what do you, do you do personally? In... Well, with your, with your family and your own personal choices, you're saying that you don't classify yourself as an environmentalist. You don't need to. You're a PhD in coral reefs. Kind of everyone would classify you that. Anyway, I would assume, I get pigeonholed. unless you're working for the oil companies. Well, I get pigeonholed, but it's interesting because you say, oh, you're kind of a social scientist. Yeah, I, I'm, I, but I also work on economic models. So I'm kind of weird <laughs> in that, you know, I, I have this ecological background, but because of the breadth of where I've got to work and who I've been, have privileged to work with from, you know, community groups, local government, national government, universities, just this incredible, I get to see how these things could tie together. Um, but you need to be pragmatic. But you have well. to be pragmatic. If you just say you can't eat fish, stop eating fish, that's the solution. Well, okay, that's great. Go away, hippie. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, is it 50% or more of Indonesia's Yeah. Uh, it's huge. It's basic ocean. protein and you can't take away the critical food supply to people who have no choice. And the luxury of choice is something that most people don't actually have. And so I have the luxury of choice. Yeah. Um, so what choices are you making? I'm curious because uh, yeah. uh, my, mm -hmm. my, uh, another reason for having these interviews on this podcast is to actually find solutions that are pragmatic mm -hmm. and that will have an impact. And I don't want any guests to walk away without having given us some insight into what we can do. It's, it's fine to listen to what's being done, but I think we all have to play at least some small parts. I think on the food front, if we're if we're linking this to food production, I think you have to take a really interest in where your food is coming from, who's growing it, how far has it travelled, um, and how has it grown. I think that's you know everyone can do that. Even like you can you can take an interest in in that. And I'm not I'm not telling you like specific food choices. What you eat is entirely personal choice. 
but irrespective of, of what you're eating, the kind of products, whether you're you know, a meat eater, a pescatarian, a vegetarian, a vegan, the consistent things, where is that coming from? How is it being grown? Um, and that's something that everyone could take an interest in at any age. Just think about your food supply. Um, I remember a long time ago reading this thing saying, if, if you're buying a product and you don't understand the ingredients, you probably shouldn't buy it. And just, you know, just pick things up and look at them and, you know, do you understand what's actually in this product? And if you don't, well, think about buying something else. Um, so those are choices that, that everyone can make. And I'm not, you know, advocating, I'm not trying to sell a, you know, a vegan shrimp. You're not vegan, are you? I'm not, no. You're vegetarian? Um, Pescatarian? No, I, I actually, I've spent so long working in, you know, communities all over the world that I will eat anything you give me. Um, and I'll be grateful I'll, for it. I'll keep our dogs away from you. I'll, you know, <laughs> you don't want the list of the things I've been um, asked to eat. But what, but what I am given versus what I would choose are different things. So I, I, I think those are, that's really important. Know where your food's coming from. I think know where your waste is going. I think that's equally important. And on Bali, there's incredible businesses really trying to work on you know, recycling, on composting, um, and more should be done on that. There's, there's no reason why we should be throwing things into the handful. Again, we've got the privilege of choice to, to choose. I want my, my waste to be going in a specific direction. Think about the packaging that you're, you're buying things in. These are all really simple actions that everyone could be taking at any level. Um, on energy, uh, you know, I used to live in Florida, um, big energy guzzling state um, where climate change is not real. Uh, <laughs> and it was interesting. I, I had a house there. We converted it to um, fully solar. I could not convince anyone in that neighborhood to go solar. It was just bizarre to me. It was, and our house was actually energy positive. It produced more more energy than it used. Um, mm. So you were the hippie in the neighborhood I, with the yeah. golf buggies and the SUVs. It was it was bizarre. I drove an electric vehicle and I had an electrified house. <laughs> and I'm like, why? And I'm like, well, we live at sea level. We lived on a, a bridge-connected island. We were, if lucky, three meters above sea level. Um, you know, hurricane season, we had to always evacuate because the islands would get flooded if it was hit by it. So climate change impacts were real and you... You know, people were worried about flooding and coastal erosion, but they couldn't connect it back to the SUV and the energy. It was... I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I know you've got a hard stop in about four minutes, mm -hmm. but what do you think it is that enables people to be so blinkered to the evidence, especially in America? Do you think it's a matter of it just people just don't want to see it because they don't want to have to get rid of the SUV? They don't want to... I think there's that, but I think, and this is actually a broader kind of social psychology issue. It, it's so linked to identity. I, um, the, you know, I don't, I don't want people thinking I'm the solar hippie because I'm, you know, especially I'm the, in Florida. In Florida, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm. Yeah. I, I, I self-describe as something different. Yeah. Okay? An upstanding and, pillar of the community. Exactly, and 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 how to reshape and this is what we you know this is what we were doing with fishermen so i'm, I'm going to try and pull an analogy here uh, if if your identity as a fisherman is i'm kind of robin hood i 
Uh, I'm a poor, humble fisherman. I'm just supporting my family. And the state has said this is a marine protected area, but they're not here. They don't know anything. I'm going to go and you know poach the fish because I'm I'm self-described Robin Hood. Community will believe the same thing, and you know we're all independent. We're all just trying to feed our family. You know, it's like Robin Hood um, you know, hunting deer in the king's forest. If you could reframe that personal identity that you're you're not Robin Hood. You're robbing from yourself, that this area is yours, it's your communities. You're robbing from your own forest, you're robbing from your neighbor. And actually, couldn't you become a guardian of that area and then reap the benefits around it? So a lot of things are around framing how you how you view yourself um, and how you want other people to view you and what is socially acceptable and what isn't socially acceptable. And, you know, I think, you know, one one example, uh, smoking is a great example of this. You know, there's been huge campaigns, not in terms of just raising prices and, but actually shifting the social acceptance of cigarettes. Far more effective than health warnings or, and in countries where they've done that, smoking rates have plummeted. Countries where they haven't, smoking rates are the same or, or increasing, and it's a really interesting kind of social shift that we are social animals you know, and we absorb uh, behaviors and what is and isn't acceptable from our peers from the key influences that we that we are exposed to and if you can start shaping that you could actually start shaping how individuals make decisions now in in florida that's really complicated because it's so ingrained there are certain things that if i am you know a a true american i believe in freedom i believe in owning a gun to defend my freedom and i believe in you know certain inalienable rights and you cannot take those away because you're going to shape my own you're going to affect my own identity even if there's no logic in some of those perceived you know I need to defend my freedom through violence. Yeah, the, the mm. whole identity piece reminds me of the early 80s as a kid growing up in the UK with garbage everywhere and littering mm. the streets. And my grandfather used to just throw his garbage, you know, he'd eat a gangster's pasty and the rapper mm. would go out the car window. And then all of a sudden on, it would have been three channels then, wouldn't it? BBC One, Two and ITV. ITV. Yeah. And there were ads on ITV uh, basically shaming people for dropping litter and those ads ran for a couple of years i mm -hmm. remember and, and they they changed the social norm if you Absolutely. were walking down the street with me and you ate a pack of chips and then you threw it on the floor well i bollocked my grandfather for throwing his wrappers out and and his yeah. cigarette packets now imagine being able to use exactly the same thing with communities to say actually illegal fishing isn't isn't robin hood it isn't what we do we're responsible fishers, we're a responsible community, we actually have rights to this area, and that's where that connection with between government policy and what they're looking at and focused on, and how you're mobilizing the community, how those two things fit together. Hmm. Um, you've got a hard stop one minute ago. Where, what, you what heard are you, my alarm going off. Yeah, what are you working on now? Just very quickly. Very quickly. I know you're going to help us with our rice paddy fields. Absolutely. And start cleaning up all of the subacs. So I'm still, as, as you may have seen, this this through line of, of data and information. I, 
I, the, the app that we were talking about, our fish, I'm still you know, really supporting that. How do we get that into the hands of more fishing communities, more fish buyers? I'm starting to find other groups that, that want to help you know, get that into the hands of users. Um, I'm actually starting to partner with a, a Ugandan um, developer who's built a, an app for small scale farmers so they can actually start recording their their inputs and their like a little business management tool for, for smallholders. And I want to you know, translate that into Bahasa and get that into farmers' hands. Uh, that's under the umbrella of a, a little program called Barefoot Data. Um, I am I'm working with Aston Callaway. Um, I'm a partner on that as we we think about regenerative tourism and the networks that you can start to build. Because again, this isn't this isn't just about individual action. This is how do you how do you bring this to scale? How do you align lots of different actors? So that that's really interesting. Of how do you build these little these hubs of of learning for regenerative agriculture and then train others, train the next generation to really pick this up. Um, and where can people access that? AstonCarraway.com. AstonCarraway.com. We'll put that link yeah. obviously under the um, podcast. And I'm also um, supporting a, a really interesting company called Alawan, which is a um, it's a company based up in North Sumatra in Simulu, one of the islands off the west coast. They are um, producing like virgin coconut oil from smallholder organic farmers as an alternative so that those farmers don't sell their land to like oil palm or and, and can actually create a, a very high value product from their their smallholder farms. And now we're thinking through you know, how can we generate a financing scheme that can help them replant so that they can keep those coconut groves um, and, and turn them into you know, agroforest and, and what does that look like going forward so they don't just hit the end of their productive life cycle and there's no way of, of continuing that and they just sell their land. Are you on social media? Can people find you? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, strangely, despite working on a lot of social issues, I try and stay off social media. It's not very social at all. It's, I, I, it, I, I think it isn't actually a very useful communication form. Um, but if people want to find me, you just Google my name and put Marine next to it. And I'm 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 there. All right, good stuff. There's been incredible. I've still got about twenty questions. Let's we do it again. Get, we might have to get you back for the next I, one. I, yeah. I talk. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dream McCassie. Dream McCassie Banyak. Mm-hmm.